Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and straight away, straight away, we're going to address the backlash from last week's podcast. Oh, there was a backlash. I made some comments that didn't go down well. Now, I was talking about, you thought you'd think it was innocent enough. I was talking about the last ever episode of Neighbours. I'm going to play you now what I said, which caused such, uh, well, I'm going to use the word, kerfuffle. Um... And there was something very moving about the whole thing. Susan Fletcher, at the end, reads out this letter to Ramsey Street, which is really a letter to the viewers. Now, of course, her name, as many people have pointed out, is not Susan Fletcher, it's Susan Kennedy. That is the character's name, Susan Kennedy. Um, And people were very, very quick to point this out, quite rightly, because, you know, accuracy is important. Uh, It turns out there are a number of factors at play here. One, obviously, and most importantly, my complete ignorance... Uh, that's the main thing. The second was Carl Kennedy, her husband in the show. He's played by Alan Fletcher. So that may have been involved somewhere. But also, I've been speaking to Sam Fletcher from World Snooker Tour just before I recorded the podcast because he invited me to take part in what I described last week as a multimedia extravaganza. And we did this on Friday. Now, you may have seen this on Twitter. Sam interviewed me about the European Masters on something called Twitter Spaces, which I, I, I had, to be perfectly honest, no idea what it was. It turns out it's actually essentially it's like a live podcast. It's it's we were both in our respective homes, uh, but we went on this uh, Twitter space and people could listen in, and it's the first one they've done. Um, and it's essentially it's like a podcast, but it's done in real time. And the idea is you can chip in, so you can ask to get invited in to ask questions. They didn't do that uh, last week because I think they're just trying to keep things simple. But frankly, it's making this podcast look like black and white television because it's uh, very much in the moment. It's something you can do live, and I enjoy doing it. Um, and I know, you know, I know what's going to happen. Obviously, they'll, you know, if 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 they uh, if they think it's worked. And two and a half thousand people listen to it in the first day, either live or you can listen back uh, recorded. But clearly, you know, I'm, I'm paving the way for bigger names, and that's fine. I'm a stalking horse. I'm uh, I'm Sir Anthony Mayer. <laughs> there's a name from the there's a name for the teenagers, Anthony Mayer. That's who I am. Anyway, um, 
Yes, so you can listen back to that. And in fact, it, it sort of derailed what I was, what I was going to do this week on the podcast because I was going to actually preview the European Masters, but that's what we, that's what we talked about there. So really, it'd probably make more sense to go and listen to that. You can check out World Snooker Tour's Twitter page or indeed my own, and it's all there. And uh, we had about half an hour chat about the European Masters, um, which of course is this week. So what I'm going to do this week, I've had uh, some suggestions. We've been doing these countdowns. I did Stephen Hendry's uh, seven world titles rank, Ronnie O'Sullivan's prior to that. And uh, we had to, well, in fact, before we, before we uh, continue, uh, Darren Smith uh, did, in fact, get in touch about this, about the Stephen Hendry one. He said, I'm Darren Smith from Aberdeen. Like many others, I discovered the podcast during lockdown and really enjoyed it. Delighted it's still going strong. My first snooker memory is as a six-year-old watching the 1978 World Championship final between Perry Manns and Ray Reardon. I've been an avid watcher of the sport since and was a regular visitor to the Aberdeen Exhibition, Exhibition Conference Centre when we had the tournament under its various names appear. Just listen to your episode where you rank Stephen Hendry's world titles. Let me put on record that Hendry is my snooker hero and all those seven titles gave me great pleasure. While I broadly agree with your ranking, I have had 1990, I'd have had 1995 much higher up the list given the fact that in the semi-final, Stephen made the maximum 147 against Jimmy, which, believe him right in saying, is still the only maximum made in the one-table crucible setup. The magnitude of that achievement would push that into the top three if I were ranking them. So I thoroughly enjoyed the comment, especially the neighbours' comments. So I thoroughly enjoyed the podcast, especially the neighbours' comments. Well, yeah, so we, that caused a, an absolute, uh, an absolute um, as I say, backlash. But anyway, uh, snooker player bingo is great. I've loved hearing names from my youth and stories about them. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Darren. Yeah, I mean, I think actually you're right. I think I kind of I, I, I was aware of the, the maximum, but that that definitely should have played a part in the, in the the ranking. What I would say though is, and that is you're right. That is the, the only uh, maximum in the one table. What else about the '95 World Championship is that memorable? <laughs> Maybe that's really the only thing. I mean, the final obviously Hendry won pretty comfortably against Nigel Bond, but I think you're right. I think probably that probably is a good reason to. Uh, well, shove it up the list a bit. Um, but we're going to talk about this week, and if you've emailed in, we will get to them at a later date. But uh, the the, uh, the topic of conversation this week, I say conversation, it's only me talking. But uh, anyway, uh, the monologue <laughs> is, uh, well, it's uh, Gary Park got in, got in touch, and uh, this is what he says. It's great to have the podcast back. Thanks and congratulations for, for providing such intelligent and engaging snooker talk during this relatively low-key phase of the season when the action on the table is interesting, but not yet really dramatic. I've especially enjoyed your ranking of the crucible wins of Ronnie O'Sullivan and Stephen Hendry and would like to suggest another such ranking you might consider compiling. The best performances, as opposed to the careers of the players themselves, that have led to a single World Championship victory. I was born in 1967, so I'm just old enough to remember all the crucible era, encompassing the earliest one-off victories, Griffiths and Thorburn, right up to the most recent. But Sean Murphy's 2005 stands out for me, partly because I was off work for the entire fortnight having caught chicken pox, <laughs> but mainly for the fantastic long potting and break building that Sean demonstrated in every session of every round. It would be great to hear your views on the wins of players as diverse as Dot, Doherty, Trump, etc. But I realise there may be too many to rank them. So how about a top five? Well, I was struck by this because I think it's uh, it's an interesting topic. And I did start to compile um, a, a list of, you know, the top five. And I, I, it really was very difficult, Gary, because... I mean, they're all, listen, winning the World Championship is a great achievement, and they're all, in their own way, very special. All of those one-time winners. There are actually 12 one-time winners at the Crucible. That's not including players like Ray Reard and Alex Higgins, John Spencer, who won a World Championship before the Crucible. So there's 12 players whose only world title has come up the Crucible. 
and I started to rank them and I, and I sort of gave up and I just thought instead of doing that I'm just literally just going to talk through each one and try and maybe give some context about why you know the story behind them and why each one in its own way was special so uh, the, this is not scripted it's off the top of my head so it's going to be a bit rough but uh, but I will uh, I will do my best so we start in 1979 with Terry Griffiths now this was a very significant moment actually in snooker history uh, for a number of reasons one the championship was starting to gain proper television coverage. It was starting to get live television coverage, whereas prior to that, it had been mainly recorded highlights. Obviously, Terry was a new name. He was a first-season professional. And, of course, in those days, there was hardly any snooker to actually play prior to the World Championship. It wasn't even close to being a packed circuit. Um, so he was really completely unknown. I mean, snooker in, in general was kind of unknown. But Terry, to the to the sort of watching world, was not a player that they would have known um, I mean, if you look at the season he had, he played in the UK Championship where he lost eight, eight, three up, eight, two up to Rex Williams, uh, and then basically the World Championship was his only other professional event. Um, and he qualified, um, played Perry Mans, uh, of course, as, as we heard earlier, been runner up in the in the previous year's final, beat him, and then the match really that put him on the map was Alex Higgins in the quarterfinals. Um, he beat him 13-12. Higgins obviously was already a champion. He was a very well-known character in the sport. Terry then beat Eddie Charlton at about two in the morning, finally, uh, 1917. I mean, they didn't mess around in those days. And the final was against Dennis Taylor. It was first to 24. Long old match. Um, Terry, I remember he said he'd lost two stone during the, during the fortnight because it wasn't just the, you know, the physical walking around the table. It was the anxiety. It was the stress. It was the, the fact this was a big deal. Terry was a fantastic amateur player, but interestingly, of course, you know, he, he was an amateur in the true sense of the word. He had to have other jobs to support his family, and he had several jobs, including for a while in the 1970s, he was a postman. And this is how these sort of things happen. It's almost sort of written in the stars. There was a postal strike one year, so he had a few weeks where he wasn't working, and he used that time to practice. And he went on immediately afterwards, to win the Welsh Amateur title. Um, and then that sort of got him very much uh, well-known. Um, he uh, became, you know, a, a very sort of recognised figure within the sport in the, in the amateur ranks. Um, he went on uh, to uh, win the English Amateur to Championship a couple of times, which he was entitled to play in. He won that in 77 and 78, beat Joe Johnson in 78. And that allowed him then to effectively turn professional. Because in those days, I mean, talk about a closed shop. You basically had to be invited in or, or have, have your application accepted by a committee. And it was basically your fellow players. So if they didn't like the look of you, that you know, they didn't let you in. And you could just imagine the sort of stuff that went on there. Um, but they saw Terry, this nice young Welshman, and recognised that he was certainly good enough. He'd won a couple of English amateur titles. So he turned professional in 1978, just after he won that, that second English amateur title. And obviously at this point, snooker was, was finding its way. It just had, you know, the first couple of UK championships. The Masters was on the circuit. There wasn't that much else. Uh, but it was becoming big on TV. And the BBC supported, you know, a proper broadcast of the World Championship, as I said. And all the stars aligned. Terry finds himself in the final against Dennis Taylor, who had, at that point was becoming established as a, a potential champion. Um but it was Terry who won, 24-16. And it was a remarkable thing because he... And it's interesting, actually, 
when it happens. It happens in 1979, literally a few weeks before Margaret Thatcher wins the general election. There's just the, the sign that things are changing in general in Britain. They're changing in a political sense and snooker is changing as well. The old guard suddenly are under threat. The Reardons, the Spencers, the Charltons, even Alex Higgins. These players who have dominated the 1970s, well, the 70s are ending and there's a new sheriff in town and Terry Griffiths becomes world champion. And I know for a fact that his victory inspired so many players to turn professional because they looked at him they thought, if Terry Griffiths can turn professional and in year one win the world championship then maybe I can do the same. Maybe I can earn a living because you can imagine all the exhibition work Terry got off the back of it and just the fact he became a massive name in, in, in British sport, overnight almost. Um, I, Joe Johnson told me that he turned professional because Terry won that title. He said Kirk Stevens did the same thing. They all saw Terry as leading the charge, if you like. Um, an unlikely revolutionary because <laughs> Terry it's not really in Terry's character, but Terry Griffiths was very important on that side of things, actually inspiring players of that era to turn professional. And obviously what that meant was an influx of players came into the game. And, and as the 1980s dawned, you know, that rich blend of characters that we all think about, in a way it kind of started there. But also we mustn't forget how well he played in that uh, in that tournament. You know, Terry Griffiths as a player, he's often sort of misunderstood as a bit of a grinder and it's sort of a, a bit of a joke that, you know, he's slow... He was a fantastic player. He was a fantastic snooker player. He was brilliant at clearances. People will tell you who were at that World Championship. He made so many clearances from 50, 60 behind to win crucial frames. And in the match against Alex Higgins, which, as I said, was felt like the sort of key match in a way for him, in the decider he made a century break. Now that is rare now to make a, 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 a century in a decider. I mean, it was a great match that Higgins had a couple of back-to-back -back centuries himself earlier on. Terry had one earlier on. It was a very high-quality match. You look at the breaks made in it. He wouldn't have been out of place now. Um, so, as a player, not just what it meant for Terry winning that tournament, but actually the way he played. He, it was a brilliant performance. You know, you look back on it, it was a brilliant performance. And to stand up to the pressure as well, fantastic. I think Terry... And his autobiography, by the way, if you can get hold of it, Griff, it's out of print, but, it, you know, Amazon and all these sort of places will, will I'm sure, have copies, uh, hopefully reasonably priced. Very interesting. He was clearly a family man. He didn't like being away from home. Um, he enjoyed playing snooker. He was grateful to play snooker, but the long foreign trips were not really his thing. He didn't win as many tournaments as maybe we think he did um, for such a great name in the sport. Um that uh, World Championship was actually his only ranking title. Um, he got to a couple more finals. Obviously, the World Final 88 he got to. Got to the European Open final the year after, you know, various semis and quarters. I think he was in the Crucible quarterfinals nine years running from the sort of mid-80s to the, to the early 90s. He was a household name, very consistent, very difficult player to beat, clearly. Um, but I think the sort of... The way Snooker went, the fact it became so big, it didn't quite align with his character... I'll say this, okay, if I was putting together a list of the, the, the ten nicest people, best people I've met in the snooker world, he would be on it for sure, Terry Griffiths, an absolute giant of the sport. And he started something special there, as I say, that year, 1979, that was a very important victory in the overall context of the professional game. Okay, we move on to 1980, and of course that was Cliff Thorburn, and this was significant as well, because Thorburn 
becomes, in 1980, the first non-British winner of the title. Now, Horace Lindrum fans will have their say, and I'm not going to get into that argument, but, you know, in, in, in the recognisable Open Championship, Cliff Thorburn, the first non-British winner, hell of a tournament that was. Um, Tanuka now is sort of benefiting from that injection it got the year before. There's an excitement about it, and you've got, you know, Steve Davis is, is there, and he got to the quarterfinals that year. Um, actually, quite a few non-British players have done well. Thorburn beat his fellow Canadian Jim White in the quarterfinals. Kirk Stevens, another Canadian, got to the semis where he lost to Alex Higgins. Eddie Charlton was in the, the quarters. This was still the era where Ray Reardon was still a top player. He got to the quarterfinals. Um, he, Fred Davis was still was still going strong. But in the end, it comes down to Thorburn against Higgins. Now, this was... Um, you talk about sort of iconic, you know, and that that is an overused word. But I think... This final um, definitely lives up to that billing because we're talking here about two people who... Would, they were two hard men of the game, Thorburn and Higgins. They didn't particularly like each other. They had various run-ins along the way. But there was a respect between them for their you know, their abilities and their achievements. Alex Higgins, his great flaw in the arena, and he, he tried as hard as anyone, but his great flaw was playing to the galleries. If he got in front, he could at times... Showboat a little bit because he was an entertainer, and that's really what happened here. He, was, he led, he led five one six two seven three uh, nine five. That point, he's the favourite, but a little bit of showboating lets Thorburn back in, and then it becomes an absolute scrap to the line, um, which is exactly what it was. It was, a, it was just a fight to the death, basically. And Cliff Thorburn finished very well. He had a hundred nineteen break in the penultimate frame and a and half century in the last. Of course, this was the the final that. Was um, there were complaints to the BBC because there was the siege of the Iranian embassy in London. That was a sort of unfolding news story, and they would break into the snooker to show coverage of of the siege and, and the latest. And the SAS in the end stormed it, and all the rest of it. And people complained. They say, "Hang on, we want, we're the, <laughs> the snooker's on. You can't, you can't. Real life can't intrude. The real world can't intrude." Um, Forburn, I think, the way he won that title very much summed up his character: a hard man. A tough guy, you know. They called him the grinder, and he was he was hard as nails. And and in a way, he could only I think win the world championship like that. It had to be a fight to the finish, um, and that's obviously how it proved. And yeah, uh, a, a very worthy champion. He was a, like Terry Griffiths, and indeed Dennis Taylor, who we'll discuss shortly. He was a real hard man of the sport, and uh, a great a great sort of name of the of the nineteen eighties, wasn't he? And um, uh, yeah, 1980 was his year. He said, though, interestingly, and, and I think he's right, more people remember his maximum in 83 than remember him winning in 1980. And I think he would like to be known a bit more for that victory because that wasn't one glorious frame. That was 17 days of sweat and toil to get to that position. Um, and yeah, he, he, uh, he did it the hard way, as you would expect from Cliff. So our next one-time world champion... Well, it's 1985, it's Dennis Taylor, and <laughs> what more needs to be said, really? Here's something that can be said. Dennis, at that point, there was a general feeling, and if you if you read back some of the, the books written around that time, there was a general feeling that he may possibly be a bit of a nearly man, um, maybe destined to just miss out, you know, be that one of those players who is, goes deep in events but doesn't quite win them. That season, 
changed everything. Of course, he started wearing the glasses, the upside-down glasses. Jack Carnham, the commentator, who was also kind of oddly an, an optician, weirdly sort of two disparate professions. But anyway, he made the glasses for him. And I think Dennis recognised he looked a bit funny in them, so played up to that because he was a great character. He, was a, he did commentary for ITV before his world champion. He recognised that and was one of the first young players to recognise that actually... You know, you could make something of yourself within snooker, not just from playing, but through being a personality as well. And I'm sure he was in great, well, he was and still is actually in great demand on the exhibition circuit. Here's the thing about Dennis, right? When he came into the game as an amateur, as a talented player, there was no money to be made at all. The professional game in the 1960s was dead, effectively. Pop Black happened, that opened something up. Dennis Taylor's now in his 20s, in the early 70s and seize an opportunity to potentially earn a living. Up to that point, he was working in a paper mill. Um, hard work, you know, for not a lot of money. Tough work, tough life. And that's why I think when he comes into snooker, he is absolutely hard as nails. Another one of these players who really gives everything, because he's known the other side. He's known what it's like to not have the opportunity to earn money from snooker. Now, that season, 84-85, it starts in a tragic way for him, the tragedy being that his mother passes away, he's very close to her, passed away, he pulled out of the tournament, the uh, the international, was not going to play in the Grand Prix, the next tournament, he was still terribly in grief, and his family said, go and play in the tournament, it's what your mother would have wanted, you need to go back to snooker, and he won the tournament, and he won it handsomely, he beat Cliff Thorburn 10-2 in the final, that was early that season, we end up at the Crucible, and he starts to find something, at the World Championship, he really breezes into the final. You know, obviously the, the final goes down to the last ball, but Dennis Taylor, to reach the final, he only actually loses 18 frames. He wins 10-2, to 13-6, 13-5, 13-5. So that's, <laughs> you know, pretty impressive. Uh, for, for comparison, Steve Davis, so, so Taylor lost 18 frames, Steve Davis lost 23. So he arrives fresh in the final, but you wouldn't know it, of course, from the way it starts. He's 8-0 down. Loses the first session 7-0, loses the first frame in the evening, and there's a sense of embarrassment about the whole thing. He's playing Steve Davis as well. It's not just he's 8-0 down. He's playing Steve Davis, who's won it three times. He's looking for a hat-trick in terms of successive years, and already the organisers are thinking, tomorrow's a washout. There'll be no evening session. This year's a nightmare. It's amazing to think that, you know, 24 hours later, it's the exact opposite of that. It's actually the most memorable evening in the history of the sport. <laughs> And a lot of that, of course, is down to the way Dennis dug in. He, he found a way in. If you look at when he wins his first frame, so he wins uh, the ninth frame, and he, uh, he he sort of gives it the the embarrassed sort of half, you know, celebration. Um, and because that was a close frame, I mean, Steve, I think he missed a green, didn't he, to lead to lead nine nil. Uh, Dennis scrambles the frame and gives it that half embarrassed celebration. But then something happens. Um, because even though he loses the next frame, Dennis Taylor digs in and he, he makes uh, 61, 98, 70, 56 in successive frames um, and gets out of there 9-7 down. And it feels like that, that that's the unique sort of charm of the World Championship. It feels like Dennis Taylor's in front, even though he's trailing 9-7. The fact he'd been 9-1 down, the fact that he's turned it round 1-6 on the spin, you know, he's got the momentum going into the second day. 
The third afternoon is never talked about. It's one of those sessions, it's like it never happened. They split it four each, so it's 13-11 to, to Davis. But actually, again, Taylor played well there. He, he, the, the frames he lost were close, and the frames he won, he made breaks. So from going from there'll be no evening session, suddenly it's all to play for. I don't need to tell people what happened. We know, of course, that it was 17-15 to Davis. Dennis wins the next two. We can talk about the black all day long. It feels like we've been talking about it for 37 years. But let's talk about the brownie pots. <laughs> one of the great shots. Um, at 17 each in the world final. One of the great pots. The blue wasn't too shabby. The pink was great as well. And it all comes down to the black. If it comes in down to which one-time winner won the championship in the most memorable way, then Dennis is miles in front at number one. Um, it's still something that people remember. They remember fondly. And it will always be part of the fabric of our sport. And that is quite something to be responsible for. The following year, 1986, Joe Johnson. Now, one of the things I said to Sam on this uh, on this live Twitter Spaces chat we had the other day, the psychology of snook is fascinating. We were talking about, actually, Joe Perry um, losing to Jimmy Robertson in that European Masters final in 2018 but beating Judd Trump in the Welsh Open final this year. And I said, you know, if you were going to make, make a prediction, which player out of Judd Trump or Jimmy Robertson would Joe beat in a final? You'd probably say Judd Trump. But here's where the psychology comes in. Because a racing certainty playing a massive underdog is actually under huge pressure. Because if they win, so what? If they lose, they know it's a massive upset. And Davis, it was a kind of perfect storm this. Because Davis was under pressure to beat Joe Johnson in the final. He would feel, or the snooker world certainly would feel that he should. You know, he was the number one player, was winning most tournaments at that point. But of course, he'd had that trauma the year before. And let's be clear, it was traumatic for Steve Davis to lose on the black to Dennis Taylor in that way. It was quite a sort of public downfall, if you like. And I'm sure everyone can remember how gutted he was in the immediate moments when he when he spoke to David Vine afterwards. Um, and so suddenly there's pressure, but the pressure's intensified by the fact that Joe played unbelievably well in that tournament. Unbelievably well. He only just got in the top 16. He, he said that um, he actually, at the end of the previous season, 85-86, he was 17th. And his manager discovered a merit point that hadn't been <laughs> awarded to him. Now, this is a long time ago, but they used to have ranking points, then merit points. And Joe was owed one, and it basically meant he went up a place. So he's number 16. He beats Dave Martin in round one. He'd never won a match at the Crucible. Beats Dave Martin... You know, no one's kind of paying any attention. Mike Hallett has beaten Dennis Taylor in the meantime, the defending champion. And I know that Joe fancied beating Mike more than beating Dennis because they played in a similar way, him and Mike. They played a very attacking game, so it was an open game. He wins that one. Then, and there's a circularity to this, the quarter final is the big match. Now, he plays Terry Griffiths, and this is very similar to Terry's match against Alex Higgins seven years earlier in 1979. Again, it goes to a decider. Terry's 12 9 up. He's a big favourite at that point. You know, he's looking like a player who can win the tournament at that point. And Joe produces an astonishing... It's 52 minutes of excellence. Um, just a brilliant burst. Two centuries, a couple of other big breaks. Just plays the absolute snooker of his life to win those four frames. And here is um, an example, going back to Terry, of what sort of person Terry Griffiths was. Because... You know, most players in that situation, if they've lost 13-12 in the quarterfinals of the World Championship, when they're playing well enough to win the tournament, they just want to get out of the place, you know, don't want to see it again until next year. What Terry did was he, he sort of pulled Joe into the toilets and he said, listen, Joe, 
well done, I think you're going to win this thing now. I think you're playing well enough to win it. Do yourself one favour. The day after you win it, go away somewhere. Just don't be, don't go home, go away somewhere. Because the press will be crawling all over you. They will make your life a misery. Get yourself and your family away out the country. Now, of course, at this point, Joe's thinking, you know, he didn't know what to think. He just got to the semi-finals of the World Championship. His head sort of is in the clouds a little bit. And he can't stop thinking about, oh, I'm going to win the World Championship. But, <laughs> but you know, you fast forward a few days... The morning after he's won it, there's literally, he wakes up, there's a photographer up his drain pipe, literally with a camera trying to see in the bedroom, <laughs> through the bedroom curtains. Um, so Terry was right, and also just showing what a class act he is there. Joe played great. Uh, he, he dominated the semi-final against Tony Knowles. Of course, he had home support, which uh, I think counts for a lot. And also, he said he'd never lost to Steve Davis as an amateur. You know, he played sort of exhibitions against him and, and amateur matches, money matches, all the rest of it. Always beat him. So even though Davis was quite rightly regarded as the king at that point, Joe was confident playing him. And he played a great couple of days, 18-12. Steve was not nowhere near as disappointed because he, he'd just been outplayed. You can accept that. The disappointment comes when you lose a match that you feel you should have won, which that was the case against Taylor. But against Joe, he held his hands up. Joe Johnson just played great and... What a heartwarming story. Joe, again, from a very humble background, he was uh, worked for the, the, the gas board. Um, you know, again, as I say, great amateur player, turned pro because of Terry in 1979. Had sort of been a bit of a journeyman up to that point. No one really, wasn't really on the radar in any way. But now he's quite rightly regarded as a legend of the sport because he's on that role of honour and so much I know just from from knowing Joe and working with him at Eurosport, commentating with him and sort of having being fortunate enough to have dinner with him and, and all the rest of it. So much of his life changed that day, wasn't it? And opportunities came his way that he never would have had otherwise. So very heartwarming uh, uh, thing to happen, I think. We move on to our next one-time world champion, John Parrott, 1991. Now, of course, in the meantime, uh, Steve Davis has won another three world titles. He beat Joe in the final 87. Joe uh, came the closest of anyone. He only lost 18-14. And that final session, it was in the balance a little bit at one point. I think it was 14-13 to the Steve before he pulled away. Then Stephen Endy wins in 1990. So John Parrott, this is a very interesting one, I think. Um, because he's right in the middle of quite an interesting era. So Davis is still, you know... Uh, very much a top player. Stephen Hendry's come along as a top player. Jimmy White's at his peak. And John Parrott becomes the other member of the Big Four. And to win the world title at that point was impressive for a number of reasons. One, because of those other three. But two, I think, because of the huge, and let's be honest, humiliating defeat he'd suffered in 1989. 18-3 he'd lost to Davis. 18-3. You know, that is pretty <laughs> traumatic, to say the least. And, but what's interesting is in the meantime, he starts to win tournaments. Snooker starts to expand abroad a little bit more outside Britain. And John Parrott was a bit of a master at winning overseas because he was such a family man that when he went abroad, he just treated it as business. He didn't treat it as a holiday like some of the other players. He it was all business and he got his fair share of uh, tournament victories, which obviously got his confidence up. And he said, I've heard John say that, when he walked in the Crucible in 1991, that first day, he just thought, I'm going to win this. And that's a great feeling to have in a place where so many players sort of collapse and suffer, you know, an adverse reaction under pressure. John Parrott that year seemed to, seemed to be the opposite. Um, it all came down to 
one very important match that he played, the semi-final against Steve Davis, because this was the rematch, I guess. He'd come through pretty comfortably, beat Tony Knowles 13-1 in the second round, fought off Terry Griffiths 13-10 in the quarterfinals, tough old match against a hard player. But then it's Davis, and it, it, obviously this is not the final, but it sort of feels almost like it's, it's a, a match outside of a normal match, because Parrott is looking to slay those demons from two years earlier. And he did that 16-10, and he goes into the final, therefore, absolutely full of confidence. He's, got, he's beaten Steve, he's laid that one to rest, and he takes a 7-0 lead, the first session of seven frames, 7-0 lead over Jimmy White. In something like something like seventy three minutes, you know, averaging just around about ten minutes a frame, which would seem amazing now, it was possibly the best single session anyone has played in a world final. When you look at it, he's won all seven frames. Um, so, you know, how could it have been any better than it was? Um, and he, he, he nursed that lead then, seven frame lead. He won eighteen eleven. Um, Gave a very funny speech at the end, as you'd expect. John Parrott was one of these players who, I think, had, uh, again, such a, an interesting personality and then obviously became later a very high-profile uh, media celebrity in the sporting world. But another player out there in the arena, absolutely hard as nails, and you know, which you have to be to win this tournament. You've got to be tough, and he was, and... You know, his name is on that trophy, and he, he didn't really get close again after that, but it didn't matter. He, he won it, um, and was, was a very worthy winner. Had a, had a tough time to, to win that tournament, as I say, with the, uh, with the, um, the, the Davis and Hendry rivalry burning bright, and Jimmy White, you know, at his, at his best as well. That was quite special, I think, to win it at that time. Then what happens, of course, is Stephen Hendry dominates, and we get to 1997, and he's looking to win then his seventh world title, it would be six in a row, plays Ken Doherty in the final. And Ken, at this point, had come along, and in that mid-90s, he was, along with Peter Ebden and, and, and James Watanar and these sort of people, he was forming a challenge to Hendry, obviously, but just after them, it was the class of 92, as well as Sullivan Higgins-Williams coming through. They were all challenging Hendry, but could any of them actually beat him? Well, it turned out they could. Interesting final, and a typical... Sort of Ken Doherty um, performance in a way because Stephen Hendry made five centuries. He he made, he scored more points in the match and it was eighteen twelve to Ken. Remember, but Ken won the close frames. He made he won the psychologically important frames, the ones with the clearances, the ones from behind. And what a wonderful, what a wonderful thing it was for him to win that. You know, he grew up in a very humble, um, from very humble beginnings in. Ireland. His father died when he was quite young. His mother, who I was privileged to meet, was a wonderful woman, Rose. Um, she would, t you know, they lived in a very small house, him and his siblings, but she would take people in if they needed, you know, a roof over their head for a couple of nights. She would cook for people. She would do anything for anybody. And, and she instilled in Ken that essential decency that we see in him now. You know, that, that likeable character that's come from her. She would go around, he, he would play Jason's in Ranala, uh, the snooker club just around the corner from where he lived, and he would be in there all day, she'd have to come and chase him out for his dinner, all that sort of stuff. He would stand on a biscuit tin to play on the full-size table. And from those, you know, humble beginnings, he stood on top of the snooker world. Um, and could have won it a couple more times, because he got to the final of the year after, lost to John Higgins. 2003, 
it seemed to be written that he would win it there because he kept on making all these comebacks, winning these dramatic matches. Of course, the Paul Hunter semi-final from 15-9 down that he won 17-16. He was 11-2 down in the final to Mark Williams and took that very nearly the distance. Williams won 18-16. But 97 was the year. So many stories come out of that. It was reckoned that Dublin Central Police Station didn't receive any calls on the night of the final session because everyone, as Ken said, even the criminals were indoors watching the snooker. <laughs> he had a massive parade. Tens of thousands of people turned out to welcome him back to Dublin. Just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And um, But a bit like Joe, really. Joe beat Steve Davis in the final. So nobody could say, oh, that was a fluke or that was just lucky. He beat the best player in the world in the final. And Ken did the same. Ken Doherty beat Stephen Hendry in the final. So nobody could say, oh, well, things opened up for you, Ken, and you were, you know, you're a bit lucky with the draw. None of that. It was uh, a proper old final. He'd already beaten, by the way, Steve Davis and John Higgins along the way. So, uh, yeah, it was, um, it was Ken Gere. And, uh, as I say, you know, it, it looks for a while like he might win it again. It didn't happen, but what a, what a great set of memories to have. And I know Ken is, is rightly proud. Put it this way, when ITV were going to do a thing, uh, just this year, actually, on, on the 25th anniversary of Ken winning it, they were asking about whether they could source still photographs of it and where they could get them from. Ken said, oh, don't worry, I've got some on my phone. <laughs> and sure enough, and why not? Sure enough, there they were, memories for him of that great day. I mentioned Peter Ebden there. He was in that era, another player who was definitely challenging. He'd lost to Stephen Hendry in 1996. Of course, 2002, he ends up playing Hendry in the final again. Peter Ebden, an extraordinarily focused individual, um, was very much into sort of meditative practices and, and the mind would read self-improvement books. He was a little bit ahead of his time in that way, I think. And I think more players now look at psychology as being important. I think Ebden blazed a bit of a trail for that. And I think people looked at him at, at times and thought, you know, is this stuff strictly, strictly relevant to what you're doing? But it, clearly it was. And again, he wasn't really troubled that much on his way to... Certainly the semi-finals got through without really being pushed too much. But the semi-final with Matthew Stevens was an absolute epic. And it proved actually Ebden's real grit and determination because he was 16-14 down. He was basically a ball from from winning 17-14. Um, Ebden made a great clearance, fantastic clearance, uh, potted uh, do-or-die pink. He was a, a player who, even though he was known for being... He could be a grinder, he could make things tough, he was methodical, because he did slow down. I mean, he came through in 92 with that ponytail as a quick player, slowed down over the years, worked on his technique a lot with Chris Henry, his coach, became more methodical. But he was a very brave player. He would go for balls at critical times that other players wouldn't, and that made the difference in that match. He won that frame, he made a 1-3-8 uh, in the next for 16 each, and then he won... The decider with the with a half century, I think fifty five was the break, and into the final. But he's playing Hendry now. The dynamic here is that Hendry, it felt had almost had his final against Ronnie O'Sullivan. O'Sullivan made some pretty crass comments about Hendry on the eve of that match. Hendry was absolutely determined to beat him, and he did seventeen thirteen, but put such intensity into that. He's now in the final, and it's like he feels. <sighs> He feels okay. Well, I've just got to turn up to win. I'll, I'll beat Edden before in the final six years earlier. I can beat him again. Suddenly he's four nil down. Um, Peter Edden went ahead in that match. It comes down to the final night. 
Ebden had a chance to win 18-16. He looked like he'd sort of fallen apart a little bit. Comes down to the decider. But I think in Hendry's mind by then, he's thinking this shouldn't it shouldn't even be a decider. I should have won this match. And it's almost like he sort of felt, I think, that he'd let it go long before the last frame, even though obviously he still had a chance to win it there. And Ebden got over the line. And um, I remember feeling at the time that his, his victory seemed a little unlikely in as much as he's so intense, Ebden. He's so, you know, puts everything into everything. Could he actually do that for the 17 days? Well, it turned out he could. Um, and that, that, of course, that's 20 years ago now. That's the last world final to go to a deciding frame. Of course, got to the final again in 2006, lost to uh, Graham Dot, who we, come, we will come on to shortly. So our next first-time winner, this was a memorable one for sure, Sean Murphy, 2005, only the second qualifier to win the World Championship um, after Terry Griffiths in 1979. Sean broke through very as a very young age. He actually turned professional when he was 15. And he'd been known to the Stuka world before that because he had a contract uh, with, a sponsorship contract with Doc Martins. And they sponsored the Premier League. So as a sort of 12, 13-year-old, he would play exhibition frames ahead of the main Premier League matches against the top players, against Hendry and O'Sullivan and Higgins and Davis and these people. And he became known as quite a precocious talent, but a talent nonetheless for sure. He qualified for the Crucible for the first time at 18. Lost, I think, to Stephen Hendry. And I remember I was in the press conference. He came in and he said, when my career's over, I want to be spoken about in the same sentence as Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry. And he said it in a way... <laughs> I mean, the journalist, I think, was surprised to hear that because that's quite a, quite a statement to make. But he said it in a way where he sort of clearly believed that that was possible. Um, he spoke better then than players who'd been in the top 16, many of them for, you know, 10 years. He, he was very, a very interesting character, I think, at that age. You know, he had a lot of self-assurance, or certainly that's how he presented himself. But by 2005, he'd sort of gone backwards a little bit. He'd fallen away a little bit. Um, he wasn't quite making good on the promise he'd shown. He did get to the semi-finals of the British Open that season, t- in 2004. But, and I think John Higgins beat him 6-0, but he, well, things weren't going well. And I know subsequently he said he was even thinking about maybe looking for a job because it wasn't quite working out. But it certainly did work out, the Crucible. This was the last Embassy World Championship sponsored by Embassy. So it was a big occasion before the final session. You know, the John Spencers, the Ray Reardons, Griffiths, Taylor, all the people we've been talking about did their Champions Parade, which is a wonderful thing. He's playing Matthew Stevens. I do think it must have helped... This is the only, it's not a, not even a negative, it's just a, an observation. The only thing that I think definitely was a positive was that he was playing someone who hadn't won it before. He wasn't playing an O'Sullivan or a Higgins. He was playing someone who was in the same position, looking to win his first world title. But even so, I mean, you look at, let's just look at how, how, he, how he came through. He played Chris Small in the first round. Now, Chris was ill at that point. You know, he, he had this ankylosing spondylitis, this back condition. So... Sean, in a way, was favourite to beat him there. But then he beats John Higgins in the second round. He wasn't favourite for that. And playing Steve Davis, even. Steve maybe passed his best by then, but Sean idolised him as a boy. It was a big thing to play him, but beat him 13-4. Beat Ebden 17-12 in the semis. Final was very dramatic. Uh, Matthew Stevens did hold uh, an advantage at one point overnight. Uh, 10-6. But Murphy fought back, and he... <laughs> He won it going for his shots. That was the impressive thing. He, he, 
at all times he tried to win. He wasn't trying not to lose. He was trying to win. He played two fantastic last two frames, as if they were the first two frames of the tournament, not the last two. It was an amazing thing. His potting, his approach, everything about it pointed to his character. That self-assurance that we'd seen when he was 18, when he turned up for the first time at the Crucible. He brought that to Sheffield these years later and managed to keep that way, stay that way, right to the end. It was an extraordinary thing, um, an extraordinary story, and, and one of those that, of course, this, this great sport is capable of. And then the year later, another amazing story, Graham Dot in 2006, you know, was not thought of as a world champion. Now, bearing in mind he'd been in a world final in 2004, but I don't think people, I don't think anybody predicted he was going to win that tournament. Um, this was a kind of a strange time for snooker. In terms of its administration and the way it was run, it had never been worse. But the stories on table were still coming. We'd had in 2006 the last Masters final at the Wembley Conference Centre between John Higgins and Ronnie O'Sullivan, which was an absolute classic. The players at that time were keeping the game alive, essentially. You know, Paul Hunter, obviously, uh, had done really well at the Masters up to that point. Matthew Stevens, Higgins, O'Sullivan, Williams, Stephen Hendry still very much. And, and all the other guys... We owe them, actually, I think, a debt of thanks for just playing through all the madness that was going on off the table and still keeping snooker popular so that it was in a position to be to be taken over by Barry Hearn a few years later. Anyway, Dottie beat John Parrott in the first round. He beat Nigel Bond. So two solid wins against, you know, proper players there. And then, really, two massive wins that suggested he could win the tournament. Neil Robertson, 13-12. Uh, this was before Neil Robertson really became a top player. It was later that year, about six months later, he won his first ranking title, the Grand Prix. Uh, but even so, he was still, you know, prodigiously talented player and, and tough to beat. And then Ronnie O'Sullivan, 17-11, that was a, a soap opera all, all in its own. There was one session where O'Sullivan cracked up and Dot won all eight frames, but he was an absolute master at putting people under pressure. You know, he put the pressure on O'Sullivan. Bearing in mind O'Sullivan beaten him actually quite easily in that world final. Suddenly, you know, here we are two years later and the, the boot's on the other foot. And then the final... It's it's not remembered fondly against Ebden. It was dramatic, certainly, but it was very long. It wasn't helped by scheduling. I remember clearly the afternoon session on the Monday. It dragged on and on, and there wasn't they were they came off, but there wasn't time for Graham to go back to the hotel. It was only about an hour before the final session, and he wanted something to eat. So the only real option couldn't really go out to a restaurant. There wouldn't have been time. So the only option was to come into the press catering area which, you know, he's not the Ritz, let's be honest. And, he, we, you know, we all sort of moved out of the way, got to the front and had the sort of, whatever the sort of slop was that day. No, no, well, all all, all offence intended uh, to, to the chef. No, I mean, listen, it, it's crew catering. It's designed for a, a mass sort of consumption. So he wolfed that down and that was that. But uh, it went on all night, that, that final. And could have been, I mean, it was nearly one in the morning. It could have been, bear in mind, there were another three frames possible. That could easily have been another couple of hours. That could have been three in the morning. I remember Clive came out of the box. <laughs> Clive had been in for many hours on the final session. And at some point in the evening, while, while the match was going on, and he'd been commentating, someone had brought a chocolate cake into the press room. <laughs> and there was one slice left. And Clive came out after the final. And I don't know whether you've seen Threads, the uh, the BBC drama, which actually is set in Sheffield. It's about a nuclear holocaust, so it's not exactly... Uh, Fun for all the family. But anyway, Clive came out, Clive out of the box like an extra out of that. He had sort of one button done up on his shirt. He, he, you know, he had done a proper commentary shift. You know, a lot of concentration required for that uh, for that particular match. 
I just remember he just saw the last slice of chocolate cake and he thought, I'm having that. That's my reward <laughs> for sitting through all of that. So for some reason, that's very clear in my mind as a memory of that night. But anyway, Graham Dot has, has other reasons to remember it. I know he, he doesn't actually look fondly on the performance. He'd like to have won it with a better performance than that. But listen, he became world champion. We talk about some of the other guys. I've mentioned the humble background of some of these players. Graham came from quite a tough housing estate in Glasgow. This was not the path laid out for him, becoming champion of the world in something. Um, so just a brilliant, resolute display. And I, I, I do think that people, people at the time overreacted to the nature of the match that the final was and didn't celebrate the achievement as much as they should have done because it was a fine achievement to become world champion. 2010 is our next first-time champion um, a one-time champion, Neil Robertson. And I guess the surprise is, 12 years on, he's still a one-time champion. For my money, I think Neil's actually played better at other, on, at other occasions at the Crucible um, than he did the year he won it, oddly. I mean, 2014, when he lost that epic semi-final, 17-15 to Mark Selby, I thought he played really well in that tournament. And there have been other occasions where he started the tournament playing brilliantly and, and faded. This year, 2010... He, Probably should have lost in the second round to Martin Gould. 11-5 down overnight. Wins 13-12. Um, after that, you know, he, he sort of motors on and um, beats Graham Dot, that man, again in the final 18-13. Not a great final, really, I don't think. Um, don't think. Don't think Neil made a century in the final. But, listen, <laughs> he's made the longest journey of anybody to become world champion. Coming from Australia... Having to uproot himself at a young age, coming to Cambridge, leaving behind his family in Australia. It must have been very, very difficult. I know he obviously thanks Joe Perry for kind of looking after him initially, showing him not only sort of, you know, helping him with his snooker, but showing him how to kind of conduct himself as a professional. Um, his mother, Amanda, she, uh, she left Australia, I think, while his semi-final with Ali Carter was ongoing, because obviously it takes a day and a half to get to Britain. And surprised him by by getting there. Thankfully, he was in the final, and they unfurled the Australian flag at the end. It was a terrific, um, you know, moment for him and all that sacrifice worthwhile. Even though he won other tournaments, quite a few other tournaments, he was winning the big one that really, really mattered. And I still wouldn't rule out Neil winning it again in the future. He's a fantastic uh, character in the sport. I think he's shown great attitude and great fortitude to get to where he is and he's a bit of a role model I think in as much as uh, I'm, I'm doubtful sports people should be role models too much but in as much as they are I think he certainly is one and as I say okay so far it's the only one he's won but who, who's to say can't win another one 2015 Stuart Bingham now this was uh, I suppose in a way a surprise but not a huge one actually when you think about it because he had one of the tournaments he was in that pool of players who were winning tournaments. It's just that the World Championship always seems like a, a step too far. And you know somewhere along the way, to win it, you're going to have to beat an O'Sullivan. You're going to have to beat a Trump. You're going to have to beat a Murphy. And as it turned out, Stuart had to beat all three of them. He didn't start well. He was a little bit under the weather, a little bit ill, I think, in his first round match with Robbie Williams. That was not a classic. Big Graham Dot in the second round. Um... So he's in the quarterfinals, but you know you look at the other players in those quarters, and he would not have been near the top of the betting, put it that way. But he beat O'Sullivan, he beat O'Sullivan thirteen nine, and then people sit up and take notice. Gets to the one table, 
collapses in tears because he's always wanted to play in the one table. Stuart's such a snooker fan. Um, Mike Ganley actually, I think it was Mike Ganley who suggested to him, because Stuart was playing Trump in the evening on the Thursday of the semi-finals. He said, why don't you come down in the afternoon? Mike Ganley, by the way, is the tournament director. Why don't you come down in the afternoon and just have a look at it? Because that might help you just settle in. Great advice because... He did come down, and it's just a different arena. It feels like a different arena with one table as opposed to two tables. Came down, saw the setup, and thought, okay, so we've got more room now. It feels differently. But he gave himself that chance to get used to the environment and played terrifically well, didn't he? I mean, it was an amazing match. Went to a decider. Um, so he beats Trump 17-16. He now is in the final against Sean Murphy. Again, Murphy, former champion, would have been favourite. It was a great match, actually. It was a fantastic snooker match. Um, there were six centuries. Stuart made four. He played really well in that tournament. It wasn't just that he won the tournament. He played really well. He played, you know, real high quality. 18-15. Um, he's world champion. And talk about dreams com- coming true because, you, you know, you just couldn't meet a bigger snooker fan who's also a player <laughs> than Stuart. Um Actually, funny enough, Sean would probably be close second, uh, you know, on that list. But yeah, it, it was. Uh, I was so pleased for him because he'd been a foot soldier. He turned up. That's, that had been his sort of his role in the snooker world. He'd participated. He'd played in everything. When there were few tournaments to play in, he found proams. He just carried on playing snooker. He's always the sort of first name on the team sheet. You know, he's going to come and try, and he will. You know, he will show respect to the events. And I remember. It was, I think, the only time. I don't know why, but it was the only time that I, for the party afterwards, which is not, um, you know, it's not the, the, the Met Gala, put it that way. It's a pretty, it's pretty uh, spit and sawdust sort of affair. But um, for some reason, I stayed to the end of it that year. I don't know why. I normally slope off about two in the morning, but I was there up to like five in the morning, and I saw Stuart as I was leaving. He was sort of sat quietly chatting to someone, one of his friends. Clearly, had a lot to drink, and, and why not? And he just had this massive smile on his face. And I just thought, well done. Well done, because you absolutely deserve your moment. And it was a great moment. And finally, for our one-time winners, Judd Trump. He's certainly a name on this list um, of players who you feel could definitely become a multi-champion. I feel that he will, actually. But 2019 was his year. And like so many of these world titles, it sort of started not in promising fashion. He, he could easily have lost to Tepchara and New in that first round. Tepchara, from my memory, pots of red doesn't get on a colour when he's in, something like that, I think, in the, in their decider. Anyway, Trump beats him. He's still, early on in that tournament, not really impressing. I mean, obviously, he, at this point, that season he won the Northern Ireland Open, he'd won the Masters, he'd won the World Grand Prix, so he was... You know, he's winning tournaments, he was feeling confident. But the World Championship, the Crucible, it's a tournament with a life of its own, really. And what's happened prior to it doesn't always sort of make much difference. Started slowly against Ding, started to play well at the end of that match. And that's really when it, it clipped into gear for him. He played well at the end of that match. He played very well against Team Maguire. He uh, was, was dominant against Gary Wilson without absolutely sort of blowing him away. And he finds himself in the final against John Higgins. And this is this is what he dreamed of when he was seven or eight, when he was not only playing in junior tournaments around Britain, but winning them. So many Sundays coming home with the trophy. Now it's a Sunday far in the future. He's now, you know, 29 years of age. 
and he's playing in the world final against John Higgins, one of the greats of the game. This is what it's all been about. All those years of practice, all those, all the commitment that he made to the game. This is his destiny. Of course, he'd already been in the world final 2011 uh, against Higgins, but he was a lot younger then. He, 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 he'd become a better player by 2019. He'd become a more rounded player, an all-round player. And, well, it started, actually, in terms of a, a spectacle, I thought really, it was really entertaining, the first session. It ended four each. There'd been four centuries in that first session. John Higgins wins the first frame of the second session, and then Trump unleashes the dogs of hell on him. Judd Trump, in that session, it wasn't, it, it was like an exhibition. It wasn't like session in the world final he played unbelievably that night he played unbelievably he got the crowd on his side a couple more centuries big breaks incredible shot making incredible snooker full stop and well it, it was just a joy to behold even John Higgins I think <laughs> in, a, in a perverse way enjoyed it and that was 12-5 overnight so he wins that session 8-1 12-5 overnight the match is basically won they split the next session Trump ends up making seven centuries in the World Championship final. 11 in the match, by the way, but Trump makes seven and he wins the World Final with perhaps the most impressive display anyone's ever put in a World Final. Um, and the destiny, therefore, is realised. As I say, you know, he was the boy prince. That day he became the king of snooker. So so that's it, really. That's our list of... Uh, it's been, been nearly an hour talking about this, but that's our list of 12 one-time winners. Now, I have despite what I said earlier, attempted to put them in an, in an order based on a couple of factors. Performance, I think, has got to be number one, but also kind of significance as well is mixed in. It's just a bit of fun, as Peter Snow used to say. There's going to be people missing from this. I'm sure you feel should be in the list. But in the end, my top five, for what it's worth, from five to one, in terms of performance significance and just my own opinion, number five, Stuart Bingham, Number four, Terry Griffiths. Number three, John Parrott. Number two, Sean Murphy. And number one, Judd Trump. I think Trump's performance in that second session is about as good as you'll see in, in what's supposed to be a high-pressure, high-profile match. Um, but anyway, that's the, the, the order is less important than just recognising the achievement of these uh, of these one-time winners. What's interesting is if you look at the players who won it once, okay, all those players that we've just listed... 12 of them. Only two in that list have only appeared in one world final, i.e. the one they won. Stuart Bingham and Neil Robertson. All the others have been in other world finals. So Griffiths in 88. Of course, Cliff Thorburn had been in the first Crucible final. He got back in 83 as well. Dennis Taylor had been in the 1979 final. Joe Johnson got to the final in 87. John Parrott had been in the 89 final. Ken Nockerty was in two more finals. Peter Ebden was in two other finals. Sean Murphy has subsequently been in three more world finals. Um, is it three? Yeah, three more world finals. Graham Dot has been in two of the finals, and Judd Trump has been in two of the finals. So that that suggests to you, therefore, that you know they're, they're one-time winners, but there's a, there's a reason these guys have won the tournament. They're, they're they're players who have gone deep at the Crucible. They're not just turned up once and done well. They've actually They've got a record of achievement there, which is impressive. Anyway, if you've got any thoughts on on this topic, um, anything you want to add to what I've said, you can, of course, email 
at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com in the meantime do check out that Twitter chat that I did Twitter Spaces chat with, with Sam from World Snooker Tour because it's all about the tournament coming up this week the European Masters which will be live on Discovery Plus on the streaming platform which has uh, four tables of coverage every morning there'll be commentary on table one Alan McManus, Neil Folds and myself and Philip Studd will be the team for Eurosport. And then Eurosport Linear kicks in in the afternoon and evening. It's all on somewhere, that's the point. So it'll all be on somewhere. And by the way, I'll say this as a sort of point right at the end. In 2022, complaining it's not all on linear television is like complaining you have to wear a seatbelt. Okay, times have clearly moved on. Streaming is the way forward. And you can watch streaming services on your TV. So it's basically just getting a fire stick and paying the money. And I did say, remember in February last year, or this year, during the Winter Olympics, Discovery Plus then was on a half-price offer for 30 quid. And this is absolutely true. It sounds like I've made this up, but this is 100% true. I met a man in the lift in the McCure Hotel after the World Final, came back from the Crucible, was getting ready for the, the party, met a guy in a lift, and he said to me, I just want to thank you for telling us on the podcast that Discovery Plus is half price. He says, it's the best money I've ever spent. Now, I wish I'd recorded him saying that because it sounds like I've made it up. It's 100% true. Anyway, it's all on there somewhere. So I uh, hope uh, you enjoy the, the week. Obviously, there's been a few withdrawals. Ronnie O'Sullivan, I've got sympathy for Ronnie. He's got tennis elbow. And I had that a few years ago. And it's not nice. It, it, basically, when I had it, effectively what it meant was I couldn't extend my arm. So my arm was sort of constantly at an angle. And there was also a dull pain in the arm. Now, obviously, he's trying to play snooker i don't know which arm it's in obviously he's ambidextrous but I don't, i'm not quite sure which arm it is but it's not nice and it takes a while it took a couple of years actually to clear it properly you have to get it sort of massaged and rubbed and i don't know what the medically sort of correct term is but you know you need treatment so hopefully he'll be he said he's um aiming to get back for the hong kong masters hopefully he'll play in the mixed doubles i think it would be a shame if he didn't play in that and obviously the British Open is around that time as well. But uh, we'll see about that. There's been a few players, Chinese players, with visa issues, which is always, I think, a great shame when, when they've actually qualified and can't play in the tournament. That's a, a real, that's a really annoying thing to happen. And, and it seems to happen a lot, actually. And it's, it's completely unfair. It's, 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 a, it's a sign of the way that the non-British players are, are at a disadvantage. But anyway, hopefully everyone else will make it and it'll be a good week. It's uh, the first knockout ranking event, of course, since the World Championship. You can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. We're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. I hope you enjoy the week of snooker to come. And for now, as we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.